Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. Twenty years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Hi there and welcome to what is the penultimate democracy sausage offering for this year. I'm Mark Kenny and this ANU podcast is a production of the Australian Studies Institute, the School of Politics and International Relations and the Crawford School of Public Policy, all of course at the ANU. Next year could be an election year, depending on how strongly the economy recovers, because while the PM Scott Morrison told his party room recently that he is by nature a full-termer, When it comes to political communication, it is worth noting that what people don't say is equally important as to what they do say. In this case, Morrison did not tell his people there definitely would not be an election so much as send them in that direction. Dr Maria Taflaga, the golden rule of successful prime ministers is that they tend to go to the people when they think they can best win. Isn't that right? Oh, well, yes, and I guess one of the the benefits of a of a Westminster system like ours, without fixed terms, is that there is a lot of power for the prime minister to choose the time of his own. Um, well, I guess choosing. Though interestingly, there is some, within some constitutional constraints. That's right. Yeah. There are sort of minimum thresholds and and obviously latest dates, unless you sort of meet other conditions around a double dissolution or, or things like that, which require the permission of the. Governor General, though of course the Governor General tends tends to accept the advice of their Prime Minister. Yes, yes, there yes. have been one or two notable cases. Without a few exceptions, yes, yes, yes. Spectacularly so. Mm. So, with the vaccine now certain and the economy showing quite remarkable signs of life, the jobless rate had been predicted, for example, to peak at 15%, but now looks like peaking at just half that 7.5%. The government will probably have a bit to crow about in 2021, it seems, and that probably adds to that likelihood of an election, or perhaps it'll be in early 2022, first half of that year. Still, sophistry, misleading rhetoric and half-truths like that are so standard in politics that we barely notice them these days. 
we tend to just think, you know, that's the way politics is done. But it, it, nonetheless, it is taking its toll. There's a growing sense that people are tired of party political artifice and yearn for a more honest, more direct, and often more local style of representation. Well, happily, we've got some scholars here who have been looking at just this phenomenon. Now, these are two of three authors, the other one being John Boswell, who have written a new book called Mending Democracy, Democratic Repair in Disconnected Times. Carolyn Sellen, welcome. Thanks for having us, Mark and Maria. Now, there's a lot of literature around about democratic decay, the collapse of trust, the rise of populism, the end of parties, all this sort of stuff. A lot of people conclude that the machinery itself needs to be fundamentally revamped, but you're saying in this book, it seems, that you're taking lessons from what people are doing within the system and saying that there's a lot of potential there for for electors themselves to get more, to bring more value out of the, the machinery that's there rather than thinking it all has to be about fundamental redesign. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I, I guess we, we aren't saying that some of these proposals on the table to renew democracy, such as citizens' juries or even procedural rules um, that you see a lot of, particularly in the US, changes to um, electoral rules. We're not saying that these things aren't necessary, but so much of the discussion on democratic reform, both in the scholarship and in, in practice, has been focused on this this machinery, getting getting the parts of the machinery. And we use a really different metaphor in, in our work, um, a metaphor around fabric, which is to say that actually um, we need to think about um, some of the weaknesses across this fabric and that um, no one institutional reform is going to address that weakness. And so we have to look at the ways in which actors within our systems can can mend and make do. What, what are the resources and the agency that they're bringing to democratic reform? Uh, what, what can we learn from those? And how can our decision makers, whether they're bureaucrats or uh, ministers or elected representatives, how can they be more receptive to these more grounded ways people are trying to repair our democratic systems? Yeah, so that terminology you use is quite deliberate, isn't it? Repair and mending, uh, mending in the title there. It, it, it does really play into that idea that there are things that can be done with the system that we have. Uh, we can re, sort of revitalise it by through citizens' action and through the potential that's there. And you use a number of um, case studies, in fact, three case studies, uh, Selen, that are in the book. Um, and why have you chosen these three? Can you just give us a sketch of that? I guess, as as Caroline already mentioned, uh, for us, we wanted to go a little bit beyond uh, mainstream political science scholarship, which looks at the institutional reform initiatives and the tools that are available to political actors to reform democracy. We took also an interpretive approach. We did a qualitative study of how everyday citizens in Australia, but in other parts of the world as well, participate in politics and what they offer to, to the problems that democracies face today. So we have three case studies and uh, we, we focus on three types of disconnections in our book and we call them dysfunctional disconnections because sometimes citizens might prefer to be disconnected from the system. This could offer them uh, a productive space to make politics, like, for example, uh, feminist politics is that type of politics. You want to form your counterpublics disconnected from the formal institutions. So there could be some disconnections in democracies that are functional, that work for democracy. But we are focusing on dysfunctional kind of disconnections. And 
and uh, we we define three three of them. The first type of disconnection we see is the disconnection between the elected representatives and citizens. The second disconnection we see is the disconnections within the public sphere of now increasingly polarized, fragmented public spheres, not only in Australia, and especially we are looking at the fractured public spheres around controversial issues. And also we see a disconnection in the, within the complex world of policymaking between the policymakers and citizens as well. So we have three case studies, each speaking to one type of disconnection. And we have this, what we call in the book, a bottom-up approach to these disconnects. We have been, the book draws on a rich empirical case studies, the, the joint projects we've been, uh, we've been doing over the last couple of of years and interviewing people who are on the ground involved in the in this very democratic mending work. Uh, one case study comes from the electorate of Indai. It's a case study that Caroline has been has been working a lot over the last couple of years. The other case study from Australia is focusing on the, a group called Knitting Nanas Against Gas, which is a social protest group first formed around 2012 in, in Australia and New South Wales. And now, meanwhile, there are 40 what they call Nana Loops across Australia. And we are looking at how these actors address the disconnects they experience in their in their everyday everyday lives. And the third case study comes from the UK health system, uh, looking at how the, the role bureaucrats can play in mending the disconnects in the policymaking processes. So, Carolyn, let's go to your um, particular um, focus on this, which is INDI, because I guess that's the one that most people are going to be familiar with. Uh, it, it was a It's a Victorian uh, federal seat in parliament. Uh, it was held by Sophie Panopoulos, who then became Sophie Mirabella, and who then became an ex-MP as a result of being tipped out by an independent, that being Cathy McGowan. Uh, tell us about why you what you know, tell us what the lessons are and what why you chose this case. Actually, I, I first sort of became introduced to the Indo case um, in the way that I explore it in the book um, by meeting uh, Dennis Ginevan, who is one of the founding members of Voices for Indi. And up until that point, like many Australians, I'd understood the Indi story as a battle between two different women, Mirabella and McGowan. But actually, when I um, had the opportunity to talk a lot with, with Dennis. We were on a panel together at a conference in Melbourne and he was talking about this uh, community movement um, that actually was about asking questions about the representative process. So when you actually look close at the what happened in Indi, it, it wasn't actually about a group trying to overthrow the existing member at all. It was actually about a community movement that started to ask questions about uh, their democratic processes and and what sort of democratic relationship they're after with their elected representative and and from that became a, a movement that that decided that their existing member wasn't actually receptive to some of the things that their communities were seeking and so it was I wanted to tell that that broader story around um, both what the community movement did and then what when McGowan was eventually uh, uh, you know 
elected in on a very small margin um, and the constituency work that she did to really have a dialogue and keep that um, relationship, that representative relationship, very um, dialogical, I guess, is sort of the way we look at it in the book. So I thought that there were a Can lot I of lessons. Can you explain that term, dialogical? Yeah. You mean as in based on dialogue? Well, a lot of what happens in our contemporary politics, particularly in this representative space, is that an, uh, a politician will will have you know a series of um, claims that they'll be elected upon, and they get elected, and and it's almost as if they can stop relating to their their communities or their constituents once they're in in parliament. And and what's so fascinating, I think, about and and ought to be a norm across our whole uh, representative system is just the way in which um, Kathy McGowan and now her successor Helen Haynes is that they are constantly working and relating back their work from Parliament into their electorate. So it's a it's a communication that's two way. So they're not just polling or doing focus groups with their constituents to find out how to vote. They're actually going back after budget time and saying, look, this is what we found. This is our budget. What does this mean for Indi or you know, today I voted in the House on this, this is why. So there's a there's a lot of communication going back and forth. Um, and Jane Mansbridge, um, political theorist, talks about recursive communication and that, that our representatives and our constituents should be in this ongoing communicative relationship. And too often it's either not there, so we have kind of no communication, or we have a very sort of one-way communication that, that's more like PR and less less like a dialogue. I think that was one of the things that struck me about this um, the book that was the most interesting to me. It was it seemed to sort of ultimately boil down to to expectations. Um, you know, whenever we sort of see another corruption story in the in the in the press, it's not uncommon for like you know fox pops on the on the street to sort of say, "Well, aren't aren't political." people like this. I, I expect them to be corrupt. So what? And what's kind of really interesting about your case studies is it's actually a bunch of people who are kind of like, well, actually, I expect more. And I kind of wanted to kind of know a bit more about where did that desire sort of kind of come from and how did these people find each other to actually build this network in the first place? Yeah, well, I mean, I'll start with India and then I think there's some really interesting lessons with the the, With the, the knitting nanas, the knitting well. nanas. That's yeah. right. But certainly in Indi, I mean, it was very relational. So um, this is a long way from the sort of deliberative democratic practices where they use random selection and they're, they're intentionally seeking people who don't know each other to come together. Whereas in this community building work, it was very much about let's have a conversation in your book club or let's bring together people around um, a table. So they had these semi-formal processes called um, kitchen table conversations. Um, and those were sort of the groundwork for trying to build, if you like, a conversation, but also um, to encourage people to start listening to each other. So when when I talk to people in this um, community movement in Indi, which has grown into a huge kind of campaign movement ultimately when when the independents stood up, but but in those early days it was actually just about allowing people to talk openly about politics. So one of the primary motivators for many people to get involved was actually watching a lot of youth in their electorate just completely disengaging. And so there was a sort of um, a, a, an age group, a group that sort of were, I guess, in their, um, you know, 50s plus that just didn't want to see this youth so disengaged from politics. Like democracy doesn't have to be like this. So there was a motivation from the very beginning that um, democracy – 
can be different. And let's try and create that kind of democracy in our own electorate in the way that, that we want. So it started from a very sort of optimistic view that we, we want people to start connecting in ways that they, they want to. I actually came across the group Knitting Nanas Against Gas more from my theoretical interest in how politics is being enacted and where political participation takes place. Part of this interest comes from uh, the, my interest, and, and I, I share this interest with Caroline as well, um, our interest in trying to understand the alternative forms of political participation, alternative forms of doing politics. Because today, everybody talks about the crisis of democracy and the trust deficit and the decline of party memberships and of political parties, etc. This is one diagnosis. But at the same time, we also see the rise of alternative forms of political participation enabled partly by the rise of information and communication technologies. So I've been in my own research trying to make sense of these two pictures. One is about crisis. The other, though, offers some hope. And, and as a political scientist, I wonder if it is possible for us to link these two pictures with each other and try to understand whether and to what extent those new spaces, new forms of doing politics can speak to the problems of democracy. This is one area of interest that I, I, I have been pursuing and I came across, the, I, and I studied the group Knitting Nanas Against Gas from this perspective, seeing them as the spaces of doing politics in, in differently, doing politics alternatively. Another interest, though, comes from our, our joint project with Caroline. Uh, we had an Australian Research Council-funded project looking at the coal seam gas controversy in Australia, particularly in New South Wales, using the deliberative democratic perspective. Because it's a contested issue and deliberative Democrats are interested in understanding those issues and looking at if there is any scope for a rational debate around this issue, who participates in this debate, who is excluded, who has to have the final say, etc. So uh, we've been studying this highly technical and partly dry controversy around the coal seam gas uh, uh, issue in Australia and New South. Wales. And we came across this colorful group of knitting nanas against gas. And they were really interesting because they were taking part in a highly technical debate, but they were using humor and knitting as their repertoire of action and as a way of saying something about the debate, as a way of expressing their care and concern for the country, for land, for environment, and for, for future generations. So um, we... Were, were, they as, uh, was they, were they as technically... Uh, savvy as some other groups. I mean, because I, I hate to say, you know use a sort of a stereotype here, but knitting nanas against gas doesn't scream to me kind of uh, cutting edge infotech. Um, but uh, you can answer that. I mean, it, it, yes, yes, uh, they've been following the debate very closely, and they've been trying to offer as evidence based information as possible to to other citizens as a way of also connecting with other citizens because. When we talk to people who are outside of this group and ask them, 
How do you see the role of these nanas in the debate? And what do you get out of your interactions with these groups? There are repeated protests every week in, mm. in different places across Australia. And lots of uh, people who are not involved in the group see also nanas or the groups like nanas as the information loops. So as soon as they see a nana with a yellow hat and yellow clothes, this is the, the, the color they, they choose, uh, they, they go and ask about the latest on the coal seam gas debate. And because information is also sometimes biased mm. or, or highly political around those kind of controversial issues. And, and in that sense, I think this was a question we asked them as well and others too. I think they have a really nice way of linking this evidence based understanding of what is going on in the region with their creative, uh, repertoires of action. On the Indi again, uh, just looking at the unique circumstances there, and, and the reason I dwell on this is because having studied and covered politics for a long time, I've seen a number of you know surprise results in elections, state and federal, uh, the odd independent getting up here and there, and, and that's surprising people. But usually the circumstances are sui generis. You can look at it and you can see what's happened. If we think even back to 96 with... Pauline Hanson winning in Oxley, um, the lower house seat of Oxley, her first foray into federal politics, which, you know, sent shockwaves around the, the, um, the political community because of her hardline position. Uh, but when you actually looked at it, you could be pretty confident, uh, even then that she wasn't going to get reelected. There, there had been a historical kind of accident almost, uh, in terms of a whole lot of labor people disaffected by globalism and, 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 and industrial, um, you know, that, that, the, the, they had a, a sort of an economically ravaged community there. And a lot of labor voters voted for the disendorsed liberal candidate who happened to be Pauline Hansen. And you had that, that moment. Obviously, Indi is a bit different. It's much more deliberate all the way through in terms of what's happening. But is it can can we really draw anything from it that applies to other seats? Yeah, or, well, or are these circumstances just so specific to this regionally, you know, regional seat which is sort of contained and which has those that particular community and those particular circumstances? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the Indi case is there are a lot of lessons in it for all electorates around the world, whether or not they can um, put up an independent or whether they want to is is the question. I, mean, I think the big lesson from Indi is um, that we shouldn't take these these relationships between constituents and elected representatives for granted. They need work on the part of constituents and they need work on the part of the EMP um, and that's a kind of fundamental problem I think in modern systems of representative democracy. We just assume that our MPs know how to do effective constituency work and that and that they're doing it. <laughs> they're funded to do it, actually. Um, how they spend that money is never really sort of um, interrogated and it's a hard thing to actually research. Um, but I think what's interesting, and, and you probably know this um, and many of the listeners too, that, that there are you know upwards of about 15 electorates at the moment across Australia that are learning closely from the Indi model. And that's not to say that they're trying to put up an independent candidate, but they're trying to possibly turn their seat into a more marginal seat. And I think this is this is the work that started in Indi, which was to just 
ask why is our seat taken for granted? Yeah, it's a really um, good question, isn't it? It's a really pressing question for a lot of people when they see a seat that just stays in one side's hands the whole time and they get that 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 distance occurring that you were talking about at the beginning that leads to a sense of, uh, you know, the MP not really being responsive to them, not really being responsive to the local community. Yeah, that's right. I mean, at the time when the Indo movement started, so we're talking 2012 here, you know, there was a lot of people from what I understand in the electorate through my interviews um, who were quite um, fed up with um, the way women were being treated in in politics, like the the Gillard kind of um, moment. And I guess people also were, were really thinking about just how low can it go? They're at that point. Um, and, and I mean, I don't know if we're in exactly the same spot right now, but I think pe- the combination of sort of sports rorts and a whole range of questions around corruption in s- local, state and federal government um, and about accountability and integrity, I mean, these are all questions that people um, have been sort of bubbling away in, the, in particularly in, in COVID. Um, and there's been lots to distract us from those questions, mm. but I do think that they're uh, a lot of empowered electorates at the moment in Australia, both at the state and federal level, that are thinking about how they can engage their MP in a much more um, active relationship. So, Maria, it seems to me that one of the things that's being said here is that it's not really just about knocking off the local member and seizing control of the seat. It it may be. that That may be what the community is forced to do or is, is is enabled to do through that process. But as was the case in Indi, the initial hope was to establish a much stronger level of representation and, and interconnectedness within the electorate and apply pressure on the local member to lift his or her game. And if that doesn't work, okay, you end up running a candidate against them. Seems yeah. like a pretty good idea, right? Yeah, well, in some ways it's it's not at all um, surprising um, given that uh, political parties are not exactly famed for actually wanting their um, members to really be involved and engaged in politics. I think they'd be much more satisfied to to essentially kind of harvest their votes. And what we kind of do know for about the way that MPs manage um, their electorates is that it is often fairly functional. It's about increasing their name recognition. It's about, um, you know, creating relationships with community organisations that can then kind of effectively spread the word about that candidate or even volunteer on um, election day. Um, but listening to you guys um, talk and having um, read the book, one of the things that kind of really struck me about it was um, that in some ways, I sort of wondered, like, well, how much of it is just sort of cyclical? Like, you know, in the 1970s, when we sort of saw a major sort of uh, breakdown of one sort of policy orthodoxy replaced by another one, but it took, you know, about 20 years to emerge. We did see like a huge flowering of, of social movements, people sort of fed up with um, the way politics was run um, beforehand. And what, you know, both of you are really talking about is sort of good old fashioned community organizing, often led by women and um, a lot of these electorates are, are wealthier and it just makes me think like, you know, what is what is the role of, I guess, social capital and being an institutionalist, which means that um, I guess I would be on the more mainstream political science side of this conversation. I guess I kind of wonder like how, how long term can these kind of positive changes kind of be if there is, if there is no kind of connecting institutional change? Are you worried about that? 
I mean, I think the thing is, is that we recognise that this is not that agency will only get you so far. Like that, that the citizens in these movements, whether they're a you know a protest movement or a um, constituency sort of social movement, um, that you know that that they're at some point they interface with the institutions. But our, our fundamental point in the book is that these actors are are engaging in this system in a slightly different way to say the the, the community organising that that happened in the in the seventies, which were largely around issues. Whereas I think what the citizens that we're studying are actually fundamentally um, about changing the way people are doing politics and representation. And so they've got an eye to better process. So so the Knitting Nanas, yes, they were interested in, um, you know, an issue, but they offer a different way of engaging with that issue. It's non-threatening, it's playful, it's fun, it's humorous. This is not the angry, you know, social movements of the 70s. And I would say that the same for Indi. The people there are offering opportunities for people to engage in democracy that are highly social. Come along, bring your dog, we'll go for a bike ride. Come along, knit, make things. If you don't want to door knock, do this. So they're they're expanding those um, opportunities for people to engage in politics beyond those classic forms of, okay, if you're in our political party or if you're in our organisation, you have to do these standard things. So it's sort of like come along, have fun, engage in ways you can, um, and I think that's quite different and it's reaching out. I wouldn't say it's highly inclusive. I think there's still a lot of work to be done there, but I do think they are engaging people um in different socioeconomic groups and also um, different ethnic groups and across the age. And that's, that was one of their fundamental, in India anyway, the, one of the fundamental things was how can we re-engage young people in politics? Now, look, sadly, we have to take a quick break there. Uh, and when I say sadly, I mean sadly in the sense that Maria has to be elsewhere. So um, we'll um, say bid you adieu at this stage, Bye, guys. Maria. Uh, and we'll take a quick break and back with this discussion in just a moment. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right, welcome back. Now, we were talking just before the break about, I guess the point Maria was making was about the durability of of these changes, whether they are sufficiently long-lasting and structural to re-energise our democracy or whether indeed institutional repair is or, or restructuring is, you know, is, it has to be the long-term goal anyway. What do you think on that question, Selim? The actors we are studying and we are looking at in our book are working with the resources they have, with the resources and institutions representative democracy offers them. So in a sense, our book can also be seen as a way of responding to the question of how do we deepen representative democracy? 
there is usually when representative democracy has problems, when it is declared to be over, people tend to look at for other alternatives, alternative models of democracy, alternative ways of doing politics elsewhere. But what we see in the book is that the actors are actively working with the with the resources and, and institutions of representative democracy. Do people so, need to be more aware of the possibilities within the system rather than looking outside of it? I think they need to be more aware of the uh, ideal of representative democracy as well. Some people, for example, some deliberative Democrats suggest a more deliberative politics because they think representative democracy as a model is not ambitious enough. Mm. But when we think about representative democracy, it's a radical ideal. When you think about a functioning representative democracy, it is huge. But at the moment, our democracies are not up to the ideals of representative democracy. And what we see in our book is that, especially in the Indai case, the actors are trying to make the model to, to achieve its full potential rather than, rather than coming up with an alternative yeah. way of uh, in reinventing democracy. That is why our book is not called Reinventing Democracy, but Mending Democracy, because we are interested in the idea of this mending. How can we mend what we already have, what we already value by drawing on some insights from practice, but also drawing some insights from the emerging literature around alternative forms of political participation, deliberative democracy, participatory democracy. So our book brings these ideas together for the purposes of mending what we have. Well, I mean, I think this is all very encouraging. In fact, the more we discuss this, the more encouraged I feel about it because it strikes me, I make a couple of observations. One of them is that the idea of deliberative democracy, of uh, of citizens' assemblies and, and, and juries and, and these kinds of things, apart from the obvious criticism that they are yet more machinery, yet more layers in the process and that that's uh, that, that they may still be worth doing for that uh, you know for all of that, but there'll be a lot of resistance to it as well. The other point, of course, is that actually making those changes, it seems a long way off. If we're if we're honest about it, given how fast things have how you know resistant our system is to change, it seems unlikely we're going to have any of these kinds of dramatic changes to our our institutional structures and machinery in the immediate term. But what you're talking about can be done now and is being done now to some extent. And it probably potentially has uh, you know, a, a multiplier effect anyway. That is, as MPs realise that they are vulnerable to these community organisations that come up and basically demand greater sensitivity and, 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 and service from their MPs, they either respond to that or they are you know, uh, they, they're at risk of, of being knocked off. And it doesn't even have to happen in their seat. It could happen in a neighbouring seat. Uh, presumably, a lot of people watched what happened in Indi, for example, and think, mm, well, I don't want that to happen to me. And, and so you end up with, particularly if it happens more, you end up with better levels of representation. 
When people turn to deliberative democracy for ideas, for inspiration, for developing solutions to the problems of democracy we face today, they usually go and try to find a solution in the form of mini-publics, which bring together randomly selected citizens, and they deliberate over a period of time around this issue, and then they arrive at democratically legitimate uh, decisions. And that's an attempt to try and sort of take the parties and the partisanship out of those issues, isn't it? And yes. get to a generally, it, genuinely representative position on them. Yes, in, in a sense. And also they are seen as the spaces where ordinary citizens' voices can be heard and can be linked to the institutional politics. And there are now multiple examples of this happening uh, around the world. But one thing that we also want to show in our book and through our book is that this is one particular way of understanding deliberative democracy. Deliberative democracy as a political ideal is larger than those randomly selected citizens' assemblies. Right. Deliberative democracy is about a larger communicative processes where different actors, different institutions play a role. Media is a really important uh, space for, for deliberative democracy as well. So this is usually framed as the deliberative systems approach, this kind of broader, holistic, if you like, view of deliberation and understanding of deliberation as a communicative activity that takes place, of course, in those democratic forums, but that also goes beyond those forums. And that is a communicative activity that underlines, that emphasizes the importance of talk and voice, but also importance of listening. Also, it also emphasizes the importance of connectivity and importance of building connections across the democratic systems, both within the public spheres and with the citizens and elected representatives. So we take this broader view of deliberative democracy and argue that many publics have a role to play and they have an important role to play in our democracies, but we also need to go beyond those solutions and to look at what is going on and how we can connect the mini public's ideas to other democratic activities taking place beyond those spaces. Do you think uh, we have... I mean, this sort of, I guess, runs runs along underneath all of this if we think about the Australian system. Do we have too many safe seats in this country? I mean, should uh, – I think you made the point before, Carolyn, about um, either either changing the MP or making the seat more marginal. Marginal seats, uh, we know, uh, have MPs that are much more attentive because they have to be for their own survival. Uh, do we have too many, mar too many safe seats and, and not enough marginal seats? I mean, that's obviously a – Built, it's built into the system that way for stability purposes. You know, say so you don't end up with one party getting a 5% swing and, and having 90% of the seats in the House of Reps or whatever it might be. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I guess um, it's up to – I mean, there's many citizens out there that are happy with the way the system's working, right, I, I should say, or they're – Maybe they they haven't been uh, you know empowered to to, to rethink it, um, and also I guess yeah. So so safe seats play a role I guess in stability, um, but it does it fuels that sense of disengagement that that, that citizens are increasingly feeling I think, um, and a lot of this is often around some of those big themes that are coming up in politics at the moment. Take take for example climate change, yeah. where um, 
and we're talking a lot a lot about rural and regional electorates at the moment, but this is happening obviously in, in urban electorates as well. But but a sort of sense that um, I like my MP, I think he or she is responsive on certain issues, but when it comes to that issue, um, he or she just has to toe the party line. And so I think it's as much about feeling safe or the, the seats being safe, but also about the party and the parties being able to do more work understanding who who their who their base is and i know there are um you know there are projects within all the political parties to try and do that constituency work better or or party work but i think the the distrust issue between everyday people and the party is is a big challenge for the parties and i think that's 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 a fundamental question party have to ask themselves about how how are they going to reconnect? How are they going to um, get people to, to to know that they're hearing their concerns, for example, around climate change or around corruption or around some of these sort of systemic issues and systemic challenges that we are facing um, and how are they going to respond um, and, and, and not just hear them and listen but deliver. I think that's the problem that people feel that for climate change for so long, um, people have just felt like our politicians in the major parties haven't haven't really delivered on what the constituents are saying. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's quite a um, a topic in itself, isn't it? Because if, if we've, we have an example of that right now in the federal parliament with um, uh, Zali Stegall uh, sitting in Tony Abbott's old seat, and it was well known that I mean Abbott had most stridently. Um, sort of anti anti climate change position really of any political leader, his electorate, the polls showed it. You know that that people wanted to see action on climate change, a vast number of them, even though they were in most cases lifelong supporters of the Liberal Party, and they flipped. They flipped for an independent. Celine mentioned the word listening before, and it is um, you know it is a an art or a craft that both a lot of citizens have have lost that skill, but I think our politicians um, are almost scared to listen because they're sort of impotent in some on some issues. And that I've just, you know, I've come back from um, doing some field work in, in northern New South Wales and the fundamental message I'm hearing in these rural communities is that people like their local member, they think he or she is doing actually quite a good job, but when it comes to some issues they feel like there's no receptivity, there's no way that they're their member can step away from the party line. Are we talking federal there or state Federal, as well? federal, yeah. Because yeah. I think it's really interesting. Federal uh, electorates are huge, particularly regional and, and, and rural ones. Yep, yep. You know, um, um, David Littleproud's seat, uh, for example, yes. the, the um, uh, Nationals Party minister, yep. he, his seat is, I think, three times the size of Victoria. Oh, yeah, I mean, are, it's, it's astonishing. They're really. huge. And also there's no identity around it. So one of the things... Um, in Indi, I mean, they spent three electri- elections now building an identity around Indi. Before that, it was, you know, the, the local identity is around, I'm from Madonga, I'm from Ballina, mm. you know, mm. Benalla, sorry, that, you know, there's different sort of geographic um, and regional identities that don't correlate with these huge electorates. Mm. And any, this is, this is another remarkable aspect of what they managed to do in Indi is actually create, um, 
you know, social and political identity around this thing called Indi when the people in that region actually see themselves as quite diverse because you've got some of the communities are very close down to Melbourne, some are up in the highlands, some are border communities. They're quite different actually and they manage to get a coherent movement across all that geography and that gets a lot harder obviously in these huge electorates um, that are out west or in Western Australia and things. So Yeah. I remember uh, years ago in South Australia talking to my friend John Hill who was at that time, this is many years ago, and he was looking to go into politics uh, and looking to go into parliament, state parliament. And I said to him one time, why wouldn't you go into federal parliament? I guess I had this kind of, you know, bias that thinking, well, that's, you know, that's the kind of the main game, surely. And he responded rather well to me. He said, well, when you think about it, all the services are delivered by state governments. That's where the you know where you can make a real difference in in how how good those services are, how comprehensive they are. You know whether it be education and health and transport and 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 policing and all, all many of these things are uh, delivered by the state and uh, rather than the Commonwealth. And he felt that was a a more you know a place where he could do more. And I think state MPs they they have electorates that are you know half or a third the size of of federal MPs, and I think the feds do have a, may, even the urban ones have a major job, actually having much in the way of face-to-face contact with all of their constituents. I completely agree with that. The importance of federal MPs making themselves present in creating those spaces of interaction with their constituencies is very, very important. And in fact, we this year, our centre at the University of Canberra, uh, we did this experiment with the federal MP Andrew Liu connecting to Parliament uh, project. Uh, where we designed those deliberative town halls where we brought Andrew together with a group of uh, randomly selected citizens and they talked about the issue of mitochondrial donation, which is going to be debated in the parliament next year. And we interviewed the participants of these deliberative town halls, uh, both online and in-person town halls. And one key finding coming from this project is that uh, citizens see listening and accountability as embodied practices. They value a lot being in the same room with their MPs, mm. looking mm. into his eyes and and asking him questions and getting a response from the from the MP. Mm. And we take it for granted, but uh, looking at those interviews that we conducted with the participants of this project. It was amazing that that people keep mentioning how important, how special it was to be in the same room, to be given the opportunity to have a communication on a controversial uh, policy issue. It's a really fabulous point uh, because I think, you know, we've known for a long time that politics is personal, needs to be personal in order for it to motivate people. They need to have some connection with an issue, some some concern, some umbrage of some type or a claim for a particular possibility uh, to be involved. And they need to actually have those personal connections as well. So those MPs who can who can show up and be in places, I mean, a lot of them, to be fair, are, are doing all they can to do this, but it is, it's, it's a big task. And I wonder if you think the political parties are a kind of a, a barrier to this. I mean, because going to that point, I think you made it, Carolyn, about uh, political parties um, uh, effectively, uh, you know, th- 
deciding what a um, what an MP's position will be. The party room has a position on it, and that's that. So it doesn't really matter what the the local community thinks. I wonder if the parties themselves need to just unlock their NPs from from these positions a, a whole lot more. We've seen in, for example, the same-sex marriage debate, uh, we suspect very strongly that it's the case with climate change. Uh, Selen, you just mentioned mitochondrial donation. These sorts of issues, very often the community is ahead of the politicians, of, of the politicians you know, who are much more cautious and, you know, and, and all of that. So I'm wondering what the answer there is. Uh, perhaps it is just the community asserting itself in the way that the Indi push, uh, you know, was able to do. Yeah, and I find it always interesting that, that – on these sorts of so-called moral issues or ethical issues, there's more openness for parties to allow their members to cross the floor. But when it comes to other issues, there's there's none of that sort of recognition, even though we know that they're deeply valued-based. So, yeah, I mean, I think it would be fantastic if, if our MPs were given more freedom because then it would require them to really understand, well, who am I representing and, and, and what's my position on that? And then if they take a position that's slightly different from what they're hearing in their, in their electorate, it's like, here's my rationale for that. Yeah. So it's, it's actually encouraging, it could encourage MPs, and you see this with the work of Helen Haynes, who, who, who communicates regularly on, on, why she's voting on a certain issue based on what she's heard, and then this is the position that she took for these reasons. So that it's all transparent around um, her position. Now, independent has to work hard to do that because she or he can't stand behind a particular organisation. But if the parties were would enable their MPs, then they'd have to do a lot more work around this communication, but also around the actual issue. I mean, what's astonishing to me is when you hear how much work M- independent MPs have to do to get on top of all this legislation. The machinery almost um, shields MPs from having to do that work, right? So there's a party position. The MPs themselves don't have to do all that in-depth work on actually understanding every bill. They're, look, they're, um, having worked in Parliament House for a long time, I know there are plenty of times when MP, the bells ring and an MP rushes into the chamber and basically asks you know, one of their mates, which, which way are we voting on this? Doesn't even know what they're voting on yes. sometimes. Yep. The independent is almost never in that situation. The independent needs to know... What what this particular procedure is? Is it something harmless or is it something significant in terms of the passage of a bill? Um, they need to understand what that issue is because if they end up on the wrong side of it, it it can be one, it can be critical if the numbers are finely balanced, and two, it can be highly embarrassing uh, if they've gone against something they've either said themselves or, as you say, that their electorate might have a strong view on. Yes, I I, I agree with that. I think a strong party discipline restricts the MPs, their interaction with citizens, because they are usually given a script on a particular issue. Mm. And what they have to do is repeat that position. And citizens do not find this authentic enough to connect with the MPs. So this is also in our other project I mentioned, Connecting to Parliament uh, project. This is also one key finding that we find in the interviews that uh, usually participants say, Trusting in the MP is one thing. Trusting in his party is something else. So they are really after more authentic, more personalized forms of politics. They are interested in finding out what their MPs as a person thinks about the, about the issues they are concerned with. What about um, MP, uh, like independence, the limitations on them? I mean, I'm not talking about. We just discussed discuss the limitations or the or the, the you know the the pressure on them to be across everything that's happening, and they don't have that party machinery around them. And that shows up at election time as well. Of course, they don't have all of the support of the head office. Uh, you know, so they rely on 
you know, a much more kind of um, organic and, and local machine. And I guess that's worked remarkably well in Indi because not only did it flip to an independent in Kathy McGowan, but they managed to have her retire and be replaced by Helen Haynes. Really quite an extraordinary moment, actually, in Australian electoral politics. A seat staying in independent's hands, but not the same independent. Uh, that's pretty extraordinary. But if we think about there being more independence, there are limits to what they can do as well. They don't, because they're not members of parties, they don't swing numbers beyond themselves. Um, they they can't be ministers. They can't therefore ex- influence, unlikely to be ministers unless there's a you know a coalition type situation. So communities accept that, I suppose. They they want their MPs to uh, to to be responsive to the local thing, and they're probably less less concerned about whether their MP is sitting in a governing party room or or perhaps in a ministry. Yeah, I mean that's the famous kind of uh, argument that's pitched against independence. That you know, I, I I don't want my MP to 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 not be in government. You mm. know, so in, independents can't be in government. Yeah, they can't um, do anything. I can talk directly right. to the prime minister. This independent yes. candidate would not be able to do it. That's right. So I mean, but if you look at actually, um, you know, some of the independents and and the way the crossbench can work, I mean, they can actually uh, muster up quite a lot of, of power or negotiating power, um, particularly for resources for for an electorate. Um, but on the downside, I mean, in, we have had independents, as you mentioned before, with um, Pauline Hanson and others who ride on the back of, um, I guess, sort of divisive positions or populist positions, hmm. um, or, or they're just popular themselves, right? Um, and so there is a danger, I guess, in 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 placing too much hope in independence because some communities might not actually like someone because they're a celebrity, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to do good representative work. So I think it, it really is up to up to communities and and to, to be really savvy about well, who is this independent candidate, how are they going to listen to me and our our community concerns, um, and how are they going to work? Um, because yeah, I, I think. Just putting all our democratic hopes in independence per se, it does create more diversity in our parliaments, but it can create a lot of dysfunction as well. Um, and so it's about trying. No, well, don't worry about that. We've got plenty of <laughs> yeah, dysfunction right. anyway. Instability. We, we get a lot of underperformance. <laughs> let's be honest. Yes. Uh, we see a hell of a lot of underperformance in our political class all the time. I'm wondering, just as a final thing, if we can just go to, given that this is uh, right at the end of 2020, and we've had this extraordinary. Event, you know, the, the the pandemic coming straight off the back of the bushfires. Um, get your observations, both of you, about what we've learned in terms of representation, because we've seen we've seen um, state governments, as we were discussing before, really come to the fore. You know, as the primary service deliverers and as as the the sort of uh, principal government to which people feel a degree of um, uh, you know. Uh, I suppose responsibility or authority. They feel, I mean, as I say, the the state governments uh, run the education departments and the police and the hospitals and these things. So, um, it, it's been really quite extraordinary from that point of view. The level of representation and the level of respect, I think, that has been shown by electors towards the state governments. In in virtually every case, premiers have become more popular whilst doing unpopular things because they've been seen to be doing them for the right reasons. Uh, just get your reflections on 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 those. Yeah, I mean it's a fascinating question. I think because um, 
we tend to think in Australia, and it could be a Canberra thing, that, that most of the power is, is sort of in that central mm. federal Commonwealth sort of picture. But, you know, from a public policy point of view and from a sort of a citizen's point of view, so many of our services are delivered at that state level and that's the interface. Um, and I think savvy citizens know this, you know, they know um, that state elections matter. Um, and when it comes to something like the pandemic, you know, people uh, I think have, have seen actually how important our, our premiers and our chief ministers are in 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 that just really important public health space. So I think it's actually really um encourage people to see the value of federalism for all its problems. We we can see that it actually can um, bring – it enables people to be much closer um, to those that govern in the places where they're being governed. And I think this, this is a theme we haven't really talked about, but it comes out in our book, is the importance of local and place-based solutions. Yeah, that's right. It's a good point, actually, because people want their representation to be essentially close to them. That's right. And, and about – issues that affect them on a on a sort of a daily and weekly basis. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think one of the things about COVID, um, less about sort of the, the, the politicians and more about how communities have responded, yes. it's been it's been very local, you know, this 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 enormous capacity in our communities to to step up to solve immediate local problems that governments couldn't. And we saw this in the bushfires too. So there's a a, a real sort of recognition, I think, within the Australian community and possibly within the political class that um people People value their place, they value their local communities um, and that, that politicians that are receptive to that and see the value of whether it's a local region or a state, you know, that's an important part of our political system and it's not all about federal government. Yes, Ellen, they used to say in, in journalism, if, if it's local, it leads. And that's probably probably true of politics as well, isn't it? And as Carolyn was just saying, uh, this this has been a very strong theme in 2020, the, the way communities have have uh, organised and um, uh, I guess they have prioritised and 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 really emerged. People have felt like part of communities in ways that perhaps they haven't in the past because everyone's been that bit more locally focused. And state governments are probably better at doing that as well. They have smaller electorates, as we were discussing before. Absolutely, everyone was sort of local because we couldn't travel as well. So in that sense, we were physically locally uh, bounded too. Uh, but I guess in terms of your question, Mark, what the pandemic showed in terms of how we do representative politics, how we do politics now, uh, one point I want to make is that, uh, of course, this point is being made by a lot of people, pandemic showing the already existing problems, already existing economic inequalities we have in this country and, and elsewhere as well. And maybe it shows again that the, the, the politics, meaningful politics is also about, uh, the politics of, uh, just redistribution, redistribution of economic resources as well. Because there is a, uh, there is an overall kind of approach in politics that for a while now, especially in the modern developed countries, we now stop talking about the infrastructure and economic issues. We have to focus on what political scientists call the post-material issues like the environment. We have to talk about our identities, creating more freedom in our democracies. So we have to recognize our identities, different identities, and focus on post-material 
values because we now moved on from those earlier stages of hmm. uh, economic problems. But I think what pandemic showed and the sort of increasing unemployment during the lockdown and, and later as well, that meaningful politics requires also a meaningful way of thinking about redistribution of economic resources. So I think those actors, those politicians, MPs who speak to those uh, redistribution issues and economic inequalities as well are going to be the winners for the for the next phase. So this is very important for me that the pandemic uh, showed to, to us in Australia and around the world as well. Selene Erkan and Carolyn Hendricks, thanks for being with us for Democracy Sausage this week and for discussing your new book, Mending Democracy, Democratic Repair in Disconnected Times. It's been really terrific talking to you and there's so much to read in this book, so I strongly recommend it. I think it's a rather pricey little item, as is the case with a lot of academic publications, but um, uh, keep your eye out for that. That's it for Democracy Sausage. Uh, Look out later in the week for our last offering of the year on Democracy Sausage Extra, in which we will name the winners of uh, a big year in global, national and state politics, and we'll have a bit of fun with that. So keep your eye out for that. I'm Mark Kenny. Bye for now.